had a day yesterday when uh, I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'd had plans. I was going to do the painting of the house on the outside. And, um, um, and uh, I didn't. <laughs> Took the dog for a long walk. Uh, dog didn't know what had hit it. And uh, spent the afternoon reading and the evening um, watched the football. Did absolutely nothing. Yeah, I did. The day didn't begin great because I did lock myself out of my own house <laughs> and had to break in through the bathroom, but that's just, that's hardly work. Well, it is for some people, but not for me. <laughs> and I felt guilty all the way through. Felt guilty all day. Sitting outside, looking at the house, thinking, it does need painting. Feeling guilty because uh, should be doing something. Feeling guilty because surely, is this just wasting time? Some of us are activists. I wonder, seriously, just sit, and this is, don't worry, it's not going to end badly for you. How many of you would put yourself in that sort of category where you're always, and, and the idea of just sitting back when something needs to be done makes you feel guilty? How many of you feel like that? Just put your hand up. I'm just interested to see how many of us there are. Okay, that's great. That's great. Okay. Now, um, Maggie, as it happens, was away yesterday, and it was her who said to me, Neil, today you should do nothing. And, um, and the comment I made was, isn't it interesting? Because when you've got a day to yourself, I'll give you a list of jobs to do. And, she's, and when I've got a day to myself, you say, do nothing. And maybe that's somehow, sometimes if you marry uh, someone, that's exactly what happens, you marry the opposite. Because there's some people who are really at ease just sitting back. How many of you are like that? You, you would have no problem. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there's a fewer of you, but some of you revel in it, and it's like it's an art form. <laughs> it's a gift. <laughs> when the spirit gifted us, he gifted Frank with the ability to do nothing, really well. There's something about being an activist. There's something about being a kind of guilty activist that every now and again we need someone or something to stop us in our tracks and go wait. Because the danger for activists, and I'm not talking about you that put your hand up, I'm talking about me. The danger for activists like me is we end up thinking that the world really does depend on us and that actually if we don't do something, nothing will happen. And the danger for those of us who are activists who are Christians is that we can sort of put a God gloss onto that and make us feel even more guilty if we don't do something. And um, because of that, the series of sermons I'm going to do for the next four weeks is going to be about the love of God, the people that God loves. And the sermon will not, or at least will try hard very not to, not, will very, uh, you know what I mean, will try hard very, will, will, <laughs> I did. We will not get to the end and say, and therefore, you must. Because there's something about recognizing the love that God has that for some of us at least needs us to break and go, wow, wow. 
Now, the danger is, as Ian said, um, at, the, you know, the, at the beginning of the service, he said, you know, like we're going to go almost back to basic, the idea that God loves us. And some of you are going to go, yeah, fine, I, I know that. And some of you are going to go, well, what are you going to say that's new? Why? Or, hmm. I'm going to preach in a moment from John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved the world. And that's going to increase that feeling of, yeah. Because John 3, 16, you might have noticed is on train stations, on billboards. It's on the sides of football grounds, on the hoardings. It's, and this is true, because I've seen it, I just didn't bring it with me, but uh, it's on baby grows, if you so wish, to clothe your children in such ways. The fact that God loves us is, is sort of like at the heart of our faith. It's the prior work. It's the first step that God takes with all of us. It's the way everything begins. And when we're trying to explain what faith looks like, we can often try to explain to other people that God loves them. And we think that if we can re-emphasize it enough, somehow that will cause them to turn to him. But it doesn't seem to work like that. It seems that everybody goes, oh, good. Sometimes in the Christian circles, you know that I've got this, those of you that know me at all, you know that I've got this sort of very short uh, amount of patience for Christian tat. You know, fridge magnets and, you know, rulers that say Jesus loves you and bouncy balls that have got, you know, the Lord will keep you. And all that sort of stuff, I've got very little time for Christian tat. And if there's one area of Christian merchandising that can be stamped with this tat, it's in the area that God loves you. Because actually we live in a sentimental culture. And so it's easy for us to present the love of God within the same sentimental culture that everybody else. It's as though some Christians would have you believe it's like this. God speaks to you and says, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. And we think, well, that's probably true. <laughs> and it's not. It's not that sort of love. This idea that God loves us is not actually just to comfort you. It's not to protect you and hedge you in. It's not to sentimentalize things. It's far more shocking than that and far more subversive because I think the love of God is always subversive. We're going to read together from John 3. So if you want to get towards that, the Gospel of John in verse three, uh, chapter 3. rather. And just as you're finding it, let me remind you about how John writes his Gospel John's, are, they're all careful, but John's particularly careful in the way he writes his gospel. It's very well organized. It's around a shape and a pattern. It's not arbitrary. It doesn't actually have that many incidents in it. it. Has seven signs, seven miracles, seven sayings, has conversations with people. But it's almost like John, when he's writing his gospel time and time and time again, wants to say, I want to tell you this story. But in telling you this story about what Jesus did or the conversation that Jesus had, I want you to think about it in this way. John takes real care with his gospel. It's not one thing after another. 
really careful. And so you look at John, and if you just if you can, if you've got a Bible there, you can flick. So you've got the sort of the introduction of chapter one. And the interesting thing about John's gospel is John doesn't really spend well, he doesn't spend any time telling you about Jesus' birth in the way that the other gospel writers do. do. He puts it in a big context that God, that Jesus was there in the beginning, and through him all things were made. But he quickly gets to the idea of John the Baptist coming, and then Jesus being baptized by John, and John's disciples choosing to follow Jesus at the end of chapter one. Then we have that brilliant moment where Jesus is invited with his 12 disciples to a wedding, and they run out of wine. And Jesus does this act of a miracle that he takes the water and he changes it into the best of the best of the wine. When I was growing up in the Salvation Army, that was always a difficult sort of miracle that we would have preferred Jesus to have turned it into grape juice. But he didn't. He turns it into the best of the wine. And of course, it's a real miracle, but he's actually one of saying it's got a deeper meaning. If you can see what's going on here, it's much deeper than just catering. He clears the temple and then, and then, he meets, in chapter 3, a Pharisee. Now, I'm just going to read this in a way that I'll just make some comments along the way, and then I'll say two or three things. For those of you who have been around church for a while, you'll quickly, you quickly, uh, if you've read the Gospels before, you quickly come to the conclusion that the Pharisees are the kind of like the bad characters. They're the baddies. But the Pharisees weren't necessarily thought like that at all. What you've got to understand is that the Jewish people, they had to uh, do a really tricky thing of how do you worship and how do you stay faithful to God when you're dominated by a Roman Empire with their gods and their stories and their power? How are you going to stay faithful? So some people went off to the desert and they, they, they lived in the desert because they said, well, just get ourselves away. Some of them, like Sadducees, they said, let's make friends with the power. Let's, let's get close to power, because that way we'll be okay. And in the middle, you've got these Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, what you've got to do is keep inwardly holy, inwardly pure, and keep, keep the law, keep the rules, stay right. So in a sense, the Pharisees were not the bad guys. They were kind of like wanting to be the good guys. Now, the problem with people who really want to keep the rules are it's really easy to look down upon other people who don't. And that was one of the things they did. They kept looking down on people who didn't or couldn't keep the rules. And the reason that they clashed with Jesus so often is because Jesus didn't seem to think it was as important. And Jesus really confused them. But anyway, here one comes, a Pharisee. A man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. There's the other thing about him. So he's respectable. He's uh, respected, he's got a presence, but he's actually part of the Jewish ruling council. He's got a position of power. And he came to Jesus at night. Why would someone like Nicodemus, number one, why would he want to talk to Jesus who's a tramp preacher? Well, because there's something about Jesus that I just want to understand. Why would you want to talk to Jesus at night? Well, because I want to talk to Jesus, but I don't want anybody knowing I'm talking to Jesus. That's why he went at night. 
And he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. That's very nice, isn't it? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, very truly, I tell you. But the reason he keeps on repeating it is because Jesus is saying, this is really authoritative. It's kind of like a way of introducing speech that says, you've got to really listen to this. That's why he does it. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to uh, flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him isn't condemned, but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. Now, it's not the easiest passage to unpack what's going on, so let me just take a moment or two. But let me start in verse 16. That bit, God so loved the world. Jesus is coming, and he's trying to explain to someone who's very respectable and who actually thinks they've got the, the, the sort of the, the, their own lives worked out and the, uh, they understand how the world works. And Jesus comes and disrupts it, and he disrupts it. And at least one of the things he says is to disrupt it, God so loved the world. Now, the thing to remember about John, when John's writing this gospel, and it's important to John, is that when John writes about the world, it's never really about the bigness of the world. It's always about the badness of the world. Think about how he starts his gospel. In uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Uh, verse 10, the, the true light came into the world and he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. And so it goes on, this idea that actually the world, in John's mind, is the place that always is rejecting God. The world is the place that always is pushing back and going, I want to do it myself. The world is always the place where people say, I don't want it on God's terms. The world, in John's mind, is the world where we all try and play God. 
I wonder if any of you find yourself from time to time saying, if only you would, or if only you could, or if only God would, as though we've got 2020 vision, because actually scratches and not many of us are far away from being control merchants. I know how things should be around here. Leave it to me, I'll sort it. And we move from being put in a garden to tend it, to running the garden, leave it to me. Do as I say, I know best, let me control things. That's the world that John sees. And John says, do you know what? God loves that world. It's the world where things are not right. It's the world in me. It's the world you're in. It's the world of your workplace that demotivates you and disappoints you and brings no satisfaction and overlooks you and sometimes dehumanizes you. It's the world where bad things happen. It's the world where people go, I'm doing it without reference to God. It's that world. And John says, you know what? God loves that world. I don't know how you feel about it. But God loves it. And he loves that bit, and I count myself there, that bit that goes, the world that I want to create, he goes, I love that too, but I, you don't need to take control. Let me. That's why I kind of, it's so unusual for John, early in his gospel, to say, God so loved the world, because it's not what you'd expect John to be writing. God judges the world. God's angry with the world. God's got finite patience for the world. You'd expect that, but not God loves it. I wonder how many of you are facing situations and you're going, it's a mess. You know, in your family, your workplace, you kind of think, don't you, that when you're starting out, if we can just get past this stage with them, everything will be all right. And it just keeps on going ever further forward. And it's going, oh, it's still a mess. God, it's a mess. And God says, I love it. I'm committed to it. I've not given up on it. I love the world. I love the world so much that he gave his one and only son. It's a love that gives. It's not a love of feeling. That's why that bit I said before about, you know, God speaking said, oh, I'd really love you. You're lovable. It's not that thing. It's not an emotion. It's actually, this is a love that gives. And what does God give? Well, he gave his one and only son. And for those of us who've been in church for a while, that doesn't sound any remarkable either. Except, sometimes the way we practice is not what we believe. Because have any of you ever tried to bargain with God? I mean, not crassly, but subtly. Lord, I really want to serve you. And it would be great if... Dot, dot, dot. God, I'll give this up, but does that mean you're going to... Dot, dot, dot. And if you try and do that work of bargaining with God and here we go and he goes you don't need to bargain with me I'll give myself sacrificially to you in many religions still but certainly the time but still the whole idea about religion is will you come with a sacrifice to offer a God who's angry with you that's how religion normally works bring something bring a sacrifice Bring something that's going to make your mess better. Now, we're sophisticated Westerners, so we don't do that. So we say, well, maybe this thing that's happening to me is my own fault. 
Maybe God's angry with me. Maybe God's not on my side. Maybe God's got it in for me. Because we're sophisticated Westerners and we don't think about sacrifice. But what we actually think is, I've brought it on myself. And John says, that's not, that's not how it is. God loves the mess so much that he gave his son himself. Himself. Now, at this point of John's gospel, it's like, well, ooh, ha- whoa, hang on a minute. Son, how do you make sense of that? Well, you've got to read the rest of John's gospel to uh, hear him say, so who does that mean Jesus is? More than a man, God himself, God with us. And it's a love that saves you. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. Can I just quickly say, I think that word eternal life means life after death, but I don't think it only means life after death. I think it's richer than that. I think it's like life with God here. That's really what he's talking about. It's about what's life really about. So let's go back for a moment and zoom in. That's the big wide-angle lens. Let's zoom in on Nicodemus because you'll hear it coming out in Nicodemus' own story. So when Jesus meets him, what does he do? Nicodemus is this very sort of suave, sophisticated. I imagine him in a suit driving a BMW, arriving in the dead of night to a little cottage and finding Jesus. That's how I imagine Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man of the world. And Nicodemus knows how power, point, uh, power politics works. Nicodemus knows that if actually you want to know someone, what you do is you begin by saying something really nice about him. And Jesus doesn't play ball. So he says, we know You're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the signs that you've done. Now, I don't know if Nicodemus actually does mean that or if he's just being flattering, but Jesus has none of it. Jesus begins and goes, there's more to this than you can imagine. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And here you have this middle-aged, middle-overweight, besuited man in a BMW going, that's ridiculous. And, he, and you get, and I don't know, I, we don't often laugh when we read the Bible because we, we think we're not supposed to. But Nicodemus says, so this being born again, surely I can't get back into my mother's womb again, which is far too earthy to be talked about in church, isn't it? I can't get back into my mother's womb again. What are you talking about? You're, oh, it's ridiculous. And Jesus explores it. And he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God, this reign of God, without being born of water and spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, in a sense, the only way you can make sense of it is go, well, has John referred to this before? Well, yes, he has, because in the previous, turn over the page, chapter 1, and when Jesus gets baptized... In verse 32, John gave the testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. I've seen, I've testified that that's God's chosen one. In other words, at this point, 
you're supposed to remember back to when Jesus is standing there in the water and John the Baptist is there pouring water over him. And at that moment, the Spirit comes on Jesus. And Jesus says, that's what needs to happen to you. That's what needs to happen to you. Now, the baptism bit, the water baptism bit, was like that break with the old. But the spirit bit, that's the bit that God does. It's not about being turning over a new leaf and trying harder. It's, God, I need you. The change he sent to Nicodemus is deeper than you think. It's the same thing that happened to me, Jesus says, will happen to you. And he goes through, and Nicodemus still didn't get it. So Jesus tells him an old story. An old story about something that happened way back in Israel's history when they were in the wilderness, when they were in the desert. And there was a time when people were really moaning about God. They were grumbling. They were saying that God had made a mistake, that this was not the way it was supposed to work out. And snakes came and bit them, and they began to die. And Moses, who's leading the people of God at that time, goes to God and says, God, will you do something? And God tells Moses to do something really strange. He says, I want you to carve out um, an image of a snake and put it on a pole. Now, there's there's the irreverent bit of me that goes, could we do something quicker, God? You know, (laughs) you can imagine Moses standing over the silversmith saying, get a move on, they're dying. And he says, no, get this and put it on a pole and, and, and put it up in the middle of your camp and tell people, if you look at that, you'll live. And do you know the amazing thing is? Some did. But far more amazing is, loads didn't. It's kind of like, if you're ill, you'll try anything, eh? And they didn't. And then the other really weird thing about it is, God had said to Moses, make this snake, the very snake that's killing you, will save you. And by the by, that's why on... Um, doctors and pharmacists, you've got the the pole and the snake. That's where it comes from. You learn a bit every day. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, the middle-aged, suited, BMW-driving man, it's as simple as that, Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It'll be like that with me, Jesus says. I'll get lifted up like the snake was on a pole, except it'll be a cross. And if you choose to look, and you choose to trust, and you choose to believe, you'll be saved. The final piece of that reading simply says, why would you not look? And John goes on to say, some people would prefer to hug to the darkness than look into the light. When we finish the service and we all go home, you'll get out, and if God's good to us, it'll still be sun shining. If he really doesn't like us, it'll start raining. Immediately we get outside the door. You'll get out 
and you'll turn to the sun and the sun will warm you. And because it doesn't happen that often, we will go, it's beautiful. You can, if you wish, or if you feel you need to, you can stay in the shadow, knowing the sun's there, but not actually ever encountering it for yourself. Or you can move into the sun and allow it to hit you. And Jesus uses a really simple image. Turn and see the one who dies for you. This is the way that God loves the world. This is the way God loves me and loves you. This is the way he acts. You might have heard this for years, and you have, some of you. But like Nicodemus, every now and again, it's so easy to think, I'll fix it. Because I'm an activist. When all along, God has lavished his world, his, lo his love on the world, and he's asking us to turn to him. For all of us, the question is, will you receive it? And then for some of us, it's that thing, if, if God really loves the world I'm in that much, what might happen? What might happen? What might happen? When John writes his stories about Jesus meeting people, he writes them not to give an account he writes them for you that read. And he goes, are you ready to bring your face back into the sun? Are you ready to trust the one who died? It's like Jesus throws out the lifeline and it's like, are you willing to grab it? Or are you going to continue to do things your way in your manner? The love that God has is a subversive love because it's a love for those people and those situations that we might not think are lovable. But some days that's me too. Some days it's easy to say, well, surely God can't love them. But there's some days when it's like, does God love me? And John says, yeah, he does. And it's not sentimental, it's a self-sacrificial, it's the love that changes. It's the love that saves. It's the love that welcomes you into life with God in its fullness. And as a middle-aged man who doesn't drive a BMW and doesn't wear a suit very often, I need to hear that time and time again. Because I'm in danger of thinking that I've got to make things work. And John and Nicodemus goes, no, this is God's doing this. Receive it again. And watch for what's going on. Last thing, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's got a prayer for them halfway through. This is the prayer. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's saying, I want you to know that love. The width, the height, the depth. 
Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew, as I think we know, that that's the key thing. I want to pray this morning uh, for some folks, and this is how we're going to do it. I want to pray for you that have been walking the Christian life for so long, but actually you know that you're very tempted every now and again to tipple over into just I'll do stuff, the activists amongst you. And it's, it's indiscernible and nobody would guess it, but actually it's been quite a while since you've been reminded of the love that God has for you because you spend much of your life telling other people how much he loves them. But actually, it's almost indiscernible, but you've forgotten how much he loves you. I want to pray for those for whom it's like the next step of my journey, and, it's, and that the journey is an overrated and overused metaphor, but it's like, you're on, it's like you're walking out on ice, on a pool that's ice, and you're kind of putting your foot forward, and it's like, will this ice support me, or will it crack, and will I sink? And this morning, it's like, yeah, okay, I'll transfer my weight to the foot that says I'll take the next step because actually I want to trust the one who died for me. I want to believe in him. And I want to pray for those two sets of people at this point, the people who've been walking a while and the people who are just making the next step. And the way we're going to do it is I'm simply going to ask if that's you this morning, then stand and we'll pray it's as simple as that it's as non-controversial as that but just we'll pray so why don't we close our eyes for a moment and in the quietness you might just want to begin to ask is that me <laughs> is this a moment for me and uh, for some of you, it will be. And for others of you, it will be, no, I'm doing okay. But is this a moment for me? And if this is your moment, you recognize yourself in those two groups of people, then do you want to just stand? Just now. No emotion. Just stand. Lord, I want to pray for those for whom it's really important this morning that they hear the good news that they are loved by you. I want to pray for those who stand, who have a tendency to want to control things. Lord, I pray that they might relax into the fact that you're a God who's gone ahead of them. I want to pray for those who stand, who are fearful. I want to pray that they might know the love you have for them and for those that they love. I want to pray for those who are standing, who tell everybody else that God loves them, but forget that that includes them. Lord, would you do something new in their lives? 
And Lord, for those who are just taking the next step and it's like testing out the, the ice, will you support them? Will you be there for them? Lord, I pray for those who are standing who want to put their trust in you for the first time. Lord, I pray that as they trust you, as they see the cross that reorders their life, as they see the cross that makes a difference to the past by forgiving it, as they trust you for the future, as they name you as Lord, will you do a new work in them? Lord, come and do it right now, I pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and rest on those, particularly who are standing, but all of us as well. But just come and, and do a work on us, we pray. And the other group of people I wanted to pray for this morning, I felt it'd be right to pray for, are those of you that are sick or you're struggling with illness. And uh, I'd love us to be able to pray for you, particularly for, it's almost like for those of you that have got conditions that have been going on for a long time. So it's not like just in a sort of an occasional, you know, with respect, it's not the occasional cold. It's actually that, that you, they've got a condition that you've just had going on for a long time. And we want to pray for you. If that's you, do you want to just take a stand? Just stand. If you've been prayed for and it's not you, you don't need anybody else to pray for you because you're, you're, you stood up before perhaps, but you don't need to stand up because you're not ill, then just take a seat. But if you want to stay and be prayed for for your condition as well, that would be great. I'm going to ask those of you that are sitting around the people who are standing just to very gently go and if it's appropriate just put your hand on their shoulder and stand with them it's very important that we know that when we're being prayed for we're not on our own that we're being prayed for together so if you just want to go and stand and be with someone who is standing have a look around make sure that everybody's got somebody at least one person with them so nobody's on their own Father God, I want to pray for the conditions that are represented by the people standing. We come in the name of Jesus. And we pray you'd break in to the bodies and the lives of the people that are standing, that you would do a work of healing that would be deep and would be final and would be solid and that would make a difference to these people that are standing. Lord, thank you that in standing, they are declaring a trust in you. The God who loves them. The God who knows them the God who sees them. Father God, I pray that as they stand and as they do it as a sign of their faith, Lord, I pray that there'd be a healing power that would come into their lives, even now that something would start to reorganize and rearrange the situation they've got in their own physical makeup. Lord, that you'd do a new work of grace for them. Lord, thank you that you're a God who's on our side and you're God for us. Come and do a work of healing, we pray, in the name of Jesus.